Before Yom Kippur, um, so let's look at let's look at the subject of the work of this time of year between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. What exactly is happening, and what is the what's the attitude and approach, or if you like, the work that's that's required now. The, the mitzvah, of course, is tshuva, the mitzvah of uh, self-correction, or as they say, translated repentance. And we have looked over the last few weeks together at the details, the practical details, the technical details of that mitzvah, how you correct mistakes that have been made in the past, and uh, mistakes that have been made between the individual and God, Hashem, and mistakes that have been made between interpersonal errors in relationship problems, damage or harm that one has done to other people. And I think we, we reviewed the, the laws <coughs> that are required, right? In Rosh Hashanah, we don't do tshuva. We are relating to that which is entirely beyond us. We don't do the mitzvah of actually correcting ourselves within the details of what it is that we've done. These ten days, of course, that is what we do. We do that. Yom Kippur is a day that is virtually nothing else. Ten times on Yom Kippur we go through the so-called vidui, the confession. It's a, it's a very heavy and an extremely joyous time because it's a time of opportunity to, um, to release or to be, to be cleansed, atoned. And that, of course, is occasion for great joy. And, of course, it's a, it's a heavy time, a heavy responsibility. But let's look at a subject now that we've reviewed those laws and I presume that you will all review the laws of Yom Kippur itself, the, the, the details of the fast and the other prohibitions of the day. Those are always more important than the, than the ideas that lie behind them. But let's put our heads this evening into one of the ideas which certainly has practical application that is going around the, the consciousness of, this, of these days. It's a complex subject that touches on many, many areas. Let's see how far we can, how far we can get. I mean, there's, not, there's no, no real time in the year that takes us deeper to the core, closer to the core than this does. We're talking here about the, the anniversary of the creation of the human being, is Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur is the time when there's an anniversary of the opportunity to correct mistakes that the human being has made in the world, the damage done to the world. Talking about living close to the core, the, the essence here of what it means to be, to be human, let alone Jewish. There are specifically, obviously, Jewish areas here, but a lot of this, the language the Rambam uses in describing these laws is he uses words like called by oilam, which means all those beings who come into the world. He doesn't talk about Jews here. So we're getting here to the core of the human condition itself, apart from the specifically Jewish Torah issues. The Talmud, the Gemara says the following thing. Let's begin with this. The Gemara says that when a child is born, when a child is in the womb, there in that section the Gemara needed has a lengthy description of what the child looks like in the womb, how it's folded up, and it describes the, the features, the anatomy of the child, and many features of the process 
of birth from a spiritual perspective. The Gemara says the child is a light lit above its head, and by that light he sees from one end of the world to the other. This has to do with the place where the baby's skull is open when it's born, where a man wears tefillin, which is a reconnecting with that light. I think we mentioned last week, that's why the Rambam says a man who never puts on tefillin is a particularly serious spiritual situation because this is the mitzvah, here we are talking of course about Jews, this is the mitzvah that reopens that connection. But apart from all the other elements of description of this child in the womb about to be born, and many of which we've shared together, there's one detail we haven't really spoken about, and that's the following perplexing statement. The Gemara says that before the child is allowed to be born into the air of the wo- into the into the world into the air of the world, mashbin oisoi. That means they make the child take an oath. That means in the spiritual world, while this child is still in that rarefied atmosphere of spirituality, right? He's learning Torah where the Malachat says the child is taught the whole Torah by an angelic being, which means when it says he sees from one end of the world to the other by this light lit above the head. It means he knows that all there is to know about the world. Some sources say it means the child knows all there is to know about his own world. That means he sees the light, he sees the world refracted through the light of his own unique contribution. He knows his own Torah, he knows what he has to bring to the world. You know, it's remarkable when it says there's a light lit above his head. The language is ne'er dalukal roishoi. There's a light lit above his head. Uboi, soifem and soifem front. And by that light, he sees from one end of the world to the other. You know, if you want to see from one end of the world to the other, or one end of an object to the other, you don't shine a light on your head. You shine a light on the object. I mean, there's something peculiar here, right? If, you, if I wish to show you an object, I shine a light on the thing, not on your head. If I shine a light on your head, I probably make it harder for you to see the thing. The concept here is, this is, that is what the child sees. He sees in his head. That's what it means. It's in his head that he sees from one end of the world to the other. In his consciousness, he contains the whole world. And he knows the whole world. He knows the whole Torah. He knows his own role in it. And that incredible atmosphere, which the child loses as he's born, when it's taken away from him, <coughs> and he's born <coughs> as a simple, unlearned child who doesn't know anything about the world. He has only burned into his subconscious, he has all of the spiritual wisdom, which we all have. At that critical moment of transition, as it's about to be taken away, by Malach, an angel comes, strikes him on the mouth, right, and takes away the whole world of his learning. The Maral says the blow on the mouth is the gift of speech. As he, be, as, he, as, as he gains the mechanism to become articulate in the world, as he begins the journey towards being able to express himself in detail, because of that he loses his connection which that w- with that which is beyond detail, with totality. He loses his connection. And that amazing moment, probably the most amazing and significant and critical transition of all of life, probably second only to the one that is the transition from this world to the next, in that moment the child is forced to make an oath. <coughs> it says, that means they is enforced on this little baby to take a vow. To hate Sadiq, be a righteous, do not be evil. Be a righteous individual, do not be evil. The child has to swear. That means before you came into the world, you took an oath. You took an oath, you took a solemn oath that you would come into the world and manifest yourself as a Tzadik, which means a righteous individual. Righteous doesn't mean super spiritual, by the way. I'm sorry to have to disappoint you. Tzadik means someone who does what he's supposed to do. doesn't mean, people think the word Tzadik means, you know, an incredibly righteous, saintly. Tzadik in Hebrew means one who fulfills his obligations. Somebody who's super righteous and saintly is called a Chassid. A Chassid is somebody who does more than what he has to do. The word tzaddik doesn't mean somebody who's super spiritual. The word tzaddik means somebody who fulfills his obligation. Believe me, that is super spiritual. That is super spiritual. In Halavai, any of us could say that we fulfilled all our obligations perfectly. That's called a tzaddik. So you take an obligation to be more than a tzaddik, you don't have to swear. 
to be a chassid, to be more, they don't make the child swear that. You want to, co- because that's your own contribution. You want to be a chassid, you want to contribute more than the bare minimum. There's no other than that. That's your own, that's your contribution. But to live up to your minimum standards, right, which is nothing more than devoting every second of your life to the correct spiritual pursuit with total purity of thought and action, that's the minimum, of course, that's required. That is what you made an oath to do. You want to do more than that, you're welcome. But that's what a Jew, and strictly speaking in this context, a human being is supposed to be doing. So you make an oath. They make you make an oath. Be a tzaddik and do not be a rasha. That's the oath. Now this obviously raises many questions. And there are many ways we could phrase the questions. But I'll, let me share with you at least one way, one access, one avenue of, of access to the issue. And that is this. What is the nature of this oath that a child makes when he's brought into the world, to be a tzaddik and not to be a Russian? First of all, you could put it in many ways. First of all, we have a concept in Jewish law, in halacha, that's called a person is mushba v'oimed. That means you already stand sworn. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Let's say you make an oath to fulfill a mitzvah. You make an oath to fulfill a mitzvah. There are halachic problems with such an oath. Why? Because you've already sworn to fulfill every mitzvah when you stood at Sinai. The Jewish people are considered to already be bound in a corporate sense, right, which really devolves upon each one of us, to have made, that means you're obliged in all the mitzvahs. So what is this extra oath that you swear to be a tzaddik? And secondly, what means being a tzaddik if it's not fulfilling the mitzvahs? Well, what is the difference, excuse me, what is the difference between being a tzaddik and fulfilling all the mitzvahs? How do you separate those? Surely if I fulfill all the mitzvahs, and I do not transgress any of the avarice. Isn't that the very definition of being a tzaddik? After all, the definition of being a tzaddik is doing what you're supposed to do. Well, what are you supposed to do if not fulfill all the mitzvahs that you're obliged to do and not transgress any of the avarice, transgressions? Surely, if you do that, you're a tzaddik. And that you're obliged to do because you're a Jew. And in a broader sense, because you're human. So what is this oath that you make to be a tzaddik? What, I- what extra can there be? We're not talking about doing more than what's required. No, that's not being a tzaddik. Do you hear the problem? Do you hear the problem? Anybody? No? It's going to be a long night. Long <laughs> night. Let's try again. You have a set of obligations, right? All the mitzvahs you have to fulfill, all the transgressions you have to avoid. Clear? Then they make you make an oath that you'll be a tzaddik. What, what does that add? You hear the problem? There are many ways to state this problem. Just to make it a bit more graphic, I'll share one with you. The sources say... Talmud talks about it. Sources say, when a person dies, which is an ultimate time of judgment, very similar to what happens in Rosh Hashanah, also is a, another form of judgment. But when a person dies, there's a certain process that the Talmud discusses, describes exactly what the process looks like, so to speak, in spiritual terms. One of the features of that transition is three angels come to greet you. Three angelic beings, without discussing now what angels means, whatever these emanations are of... of a transcendent world, they come to greet you. And this, the, the Gemara says like this, the three angels have the following functions. One comes to add up all your mitzvahs. One comes to add up all your virus, all your sins. And the third one comes to see, Where's your Torah and is it complete in your hand? What does it mean where your Torah is? Generally speaking, very broadly, it means if you're a man, your Torah learning, your involvement in Torah, which is a Jew's primary obligation. And if you're a woman... It means your Torah expression. Man is always considered to be the one who connects with the source and brings down the spiritual sparks. And woman is always considered to be the one who brings those sparks into a flame, gives birth. In other words, that's the partnership. But whichever end it is, it's your Torah. So, where, 
Where is your Torah and is it complete in your hand? Are you arriving here at the end of a lifetime with a complete Torah that you learned and practiced? The obvious question again is similar to what we asked before. If, yeah, if the one angel counts up all your mitzvahs and the second angel counts up all your various, what's left? What other claim can there be on you? What is this third angel coming to... Do you hear the problem this time? No? I say it again? Is it clear? That's the problem. Surely you can't ask of me more than fulfilling all my obligations and avoiding all my prohibitions. Surely that tells the story, no? You, you put me into the world to do a job. The, the job is defined by all the things I must do and all the things I must not do. That's my job. You give me the job, I fulfill it. You count up the positive and negative. What's this other claim? Did I fulfill Torah? Did I bring... What does that mean? It's very perplexing. There are many other questions we could ask along, along, this line, along these lines. The message is something like this. The idea here is something like this. There's something going on here. Let's, let's take another, yeah, let's look at it from another perspective. The Rambam says, in the laws of Tshuva, which he mentions, he goes to the details of how one goes through this process of self-correction. The Rambam there says, a very perplexing thing. He says that the world is judged, you are judged, and your environment is judged according to majority-minority calculation. In other words, the Rambam says like this, how are you judged on Rosh Hashanah? Right? We're talking here from Rosh Hashanah through to Yom Kippur, in that spectrum. How does the judgment go when you are judged, whether it's on Rosh Hashanah, whether it's when a person dies, Kabbalistically one is judged every night when you're sleeping, there's a whole judgment of your neshama which has transcended your body, and the next morning it's put back with a dispensation according to the judgment. The Rambam says that when this judgment is made, you are judged according to the balance of your mitzvahs and avaris. And he says it goes according to the majority. That's a deep concept in Torah, is that majority counts as if it would be the entirety, in many ways. Why is that? This also needs deep thought. Why is a majority significant? We, in, in, a, in a democratic mode, we're used to thinking that way. But in Torah, it's much more than a democratic principle. In Torah, we understand that when a based in, for example, rules by majority, that becomes the reality. It's not just that we practically follow that way because more people wanted it. We understand there's a reality there. If you want an analogy for this, what would be an analogy would be yeah, if you have an object that has a fulcrum and the thing is balanced, then it stays put. If it's moved to a situation where there's a majority of weight on one side, it will fall. The whole thing falls. It's not a question of a democratic issue. Yes, if you are teetering on the edge of a cliff and your balance is half on this side and half on that side, at the point when 51% of your balance is in the wrong place, you're in big trouble. Right? Not, 50, not 51% of you. All of you is in big trouble. There's a, there's a, there's a 100% decision here. There's a reality. Yeah. The, um, the majority determines yeah, in, halachic, in halachic matters, whether it's in the laws of Kashrus or many other areas, the majority determines the reality. So the Ramam says that the way you judged is, what's the majority of your actions? Do you have more than 50% mitzvahs and less than 50 avaris, or vice versa? And according to the majority judgment, is who you are. Now listen carefully, it's amazing, almost impossible to understand thing. 
You've been judged. How do they look at you? They count up your mitzvahs and averis. So this person, and of course the Rambams make very clear, he makes it very clear, it isn't, it isn't only number. Obviously some things are more weighty. Yeah? You can do some things that are relatively trivial and other things that are very weighty. This is this quality as well as quantity here. But when you take the weight or the mass of all of these mitzvahs and averis into account, there is an accounting, there's a, 50, there's a balance here. Says the Rambam, the judgment you get goes entirely according to the majority. If you are 50.001 on the side of positivity, then you're entirely judged as a tzaddik. If you're 49 point, yes, or you have slightly more of errors, you're entirely judged as a Rosh And the Rambam makes it absolutely extreme. He says that on Rosh Hashanah, when you stand there and you're being judged, the assessment is, where's this person's percentage points? If they're 51%, a tzaddik, says the Rambam, they are judged for life immediately. You're alive. You're judged for life immediately. If you're less than 50%, that means you've got more than half of errors, sins, negative aspects to your, your history, says the Rambam, you're judged, you're judged as a Rosha, that means an evil man, you die immediately with your, in your sin. Within your sin you die immediately. Death immediately. Now just one moment, one second. First of all, first of all, there are many, many problems here. First of all, why is it absolute life or death according to a slight majority or minority? To put the question more, more, more sharply, Hashem rewards and punishes everything. We have many statements in Torah that say that there's ultimate reward for the smallest mitzvah. What happens if you're 49%, 51% of errors, you don't get reward for those mitzvahs? Of course not. Of course you do. Of course you get reward for them. Or, put it this way, let's say you're an incredibly righteous individual. Incredibly righteous. 99% of all your activities have been fantastic, positive. You have to pay for the one that was negative. You have to pay. You want to pay in the next world. You don't want a blemish. You don't want part of yourself missing. You have to pay for that. So how can the Rambam say, what is he saying? We, again, you hear the problem. Do you hear the question? We have many sources that indicate that every detail has to be paid for. There's one Hasidic source that says that eventually in the next world you have to pay for the dust in the turnips of your trousers. Even the slightest... Bl- and of course you have to pay for that. We're talking about a process of perfection. Ultimate perfection. So then what sense does it make to say, well, we don't look at the details. 51%, you're 100%. 49%, you're zero. What does that mean? And how does it fit together with, how on earth does it fit together with the, with accounting that we know everything has to be paid for? And then he goes on to say something even more remarkable, even more impossible. The Rambam says, in effect, every individual is exactly 50.000. And that is utterly impossible to understand. Show me one individual who could possibly be 50.00. It has to be so unlikely. Is it, even, is it conceivable that any person on earth has lived a life, right? So at any point in their life, they are 50.000? It doesn't make any sense. He doesn't only say that. He says you should regard yourself as 50, for what's called a bainoni. That means you're entirely intermediate. You sit on the knife edge between perfection and disaster, or between mitzvahs and averas. And you should regard your whole city as 50-50 and your whole country and the whole world. And therefore, the process mentally you should go through is, if I do one mitzvah here, I'm machriya myself, that means I become 51, but in so doing, I tip the whole balance. I gradually fall into the side of positivity. I tip my whole city, my whole country, my whole nation. The whole world is saved. Because of one action. Why? Because we were all poised on the 50.00 mark beforehand. And I look at myself as, what kind of story is this? I mean, is it... Where do you get this from? What does it mean? This is the Rambam. This is not... We're talking about... 
How does the counting work like that? What is the meaning of this judgment? You have to understand this deeply. It's of major significance, major importance. There are many other questions we could add. We don't have time to go through all of them. Why in Rosh Hashanah don't we do tshuva? Rosh Hashanah is the time you're being judged. Yeah, a few days ago. You're standing there, Hashem is looking at you, whether you will live or die. There's two judgments, actually. There's two judgments, if you want to know. There's one judgment, what you look like in the next world, or the higher world, and one question, what you look like in this world. There are two judgments that happen. One din is, that means how you look in the next world. And there's another judgment, what will happen to you the next year in this world. First of all, what does that mean, two levels of judgment? What, what, what is relevant to me, what I am in the next world? And how is that different than what, will hap- what is going on? What kind of, there are two kinds of life. I get judged, and there's a whole halakhic discussion. Some opinions are that you get judged, both of them on Rosh Hashanah, and sealed on Yom Kippur. One opinion is you get written and sealed for the one on Rosh Hashanah, the other one's written but sealed on Yom Kippur. Two separate systems of judgment. What are these things? You judged in the next world, you judged in this world. What does that mean? But be that as it may, there's a judgment on Rosh Hashanah, it's life and death. And we don't do tshuva. You're standing in the dock, your case is being heard, you don't say a word about yourself. Here's your chance to appeal. If there's anything to say in mitigation, in extenuation of your, your crimes, right? This is your chance. Your, your trial is being heard now. And you're called into the witness stand, and you stand and you open your mouth. Not, not a word. It's forbidden to say vidui on Rosh Hashanah. You're not allowed to confess and say what you did and try to correct yourself. not allowed to do that. On Rosh Hashanah, you speak only about Hashem. Why? But the approach to all of these things is as follows. It's of major, there's nothing more important than this. There are two issues, right? There are two issues that run through the spiritual being. The inner being <coughs> lives on two planes. Two issues. <coughs> Obviously they mesh. The two issues are as follows. One is an accounting of mitzvahs and averes. The details of your life. And of course you have to get the details right. And the details are exactly as they are. No detail is forgotten. Every detail is either rewarded or punished, which again means experience. That's what it means in this world, the next world. That is clear. But there's another dimension entirely. And that is, it's very hard to find the words in English. Who are you? Who are you? Who and what are you? That has got nothing to do, for purposes of present discussion, it's got plenty to do. But in terms of clarifying it, nothing to do with the details. You could be, listen listen carefully to this, you could be a person who's 99% mitzvahs, and you could be bad. Or neutral, which is what most of us are. You could be 99% of errors, and not be a wicked person. Well, how does that mean? What does that mean exactly? Or more likely neutral? The concept is like the, the, the language in the sources that talk about it. Ramasha Shapira, for example, who explains this. You can look it up in Sefer called Afrika Maim. If you want to research it more fully, it's where it's beautifully worked out. There's what we call a hachro, hachra'a. That means there's a moving of yourself in a particular direction. That is a separate activity in the mind. It's a separate activity in the neshama than mitzvahs and averis. Let me put it bluntly. It's possible to do a lot of mitzvahs in your life and never have moved who you are. It's possible to do a lot of averis in your life and never have moved who you are. Let me try and explain it like this. Let's put it this way, perhaps. A more graphic way to put it. There's a Mishnah that says, just, I'm just seeking a way to try and give it a bit more tangible representation. Once the picture becomes clear, it couldn't be, it couldn't be clearer. The Mishnah says, for example, that a person is like a tree. You know, we have many 
we have many, many ways in which we are compared to trees. Trees. Person's like a tree. Adam sasade. Person's like a tree of the field. The word eats, in fact, you have to understand. The word eats in Hebrew, which means a tree, is the root of the word etsem, which means an intrinsic reality. Something that is real. Why do you think the Garden of Eden was a place of trees? Gun Eden. What, what does it mean, trees? It means a place of things that were of intrinsic reality. The word etsem in Hebrew means the bone of the thing, or the actuality of the thing. Person's like a tree. What kind of tree? So the, the discussion is like this. There are two kinds of trees. There's a tree that's planted in a good place. Good soil. Nourishes itself from good soil. And has branches that hang. Some branches could hang over into a place that's bad. Where the air's bad. Or you could have a tree that's planted in a bad place. It's nourished from poisonous soil. But it has branches that hang over into a good place. How do you perceive what this tree is in actuality? You come up to the tree and you prune the branches that hang into the non-typical place, and then the tree is totally clarified for what it is. If you wanted to reveal what this tree is, right, you want to see where its root is planted, and reveal that the whole tree is a product of its root, you prune, you prune off the branches that are misleading. What does this mean? The concept is like this. There are people who are planted in a good place. Good people. But even the best person on earth has a virus, done something wrong. That person, before he dies... At the moment of death, or shortly thereafter, before, after, has a pruning process. The pruning process is the bad things they've done are pruned off. Why? Because the next world is a place, the ultimate stage in the next world, is a place of total, crystal clear clarification. There's no mixed situation over there. There's a process of burning away the ancillary or the, the attached components. How do they take away those branches? One classic method is, this righteous individual who's planted his tree in a good place, suffers. It's one of the reasons, one, tonight's not a discussion of the subject, but it's one of the reasons of why the righteous suffer. Why do righteous people have a bad time? Because even the most righteous individual has done something negative, and he suffers for that. Why? It's a tremendous kindliness that he suffers for that, because it leaves him totally clarified as pure and perfect in the next world, and therefore he has his avarice paid out, fortunately for him, in this world. Conversely, you could have an evil individual whose tree is thoroughly planted in a bad and poisonous place, but even the worst individual has mitzvahs. Even the worst conceivable Jew or person has some good deeds. That person is one of the reasons why an evil person has tremendous prosperity in this world. One of the reasons. (coughs) Because the person deserves reward for their mitzvahs. (coughs) This person has done genuine mitzvahs and they deserve reward. So Hashem gives them a life of absolute indescribable luxury. What happens when they get into a world of total clarification? Where the reality is pure, <coughs> there's nothing left. Because all they are is that reality of the poison that they... Yeah, but they had to be paid for there, so there was a pruning process. So one of the reasons why evil people prosper in the world. <coughs> this needs a separate... There's an aside here that needs to be related to. It's not our main subject. How fair is that? A mitzvah... Uh, can you, uh, do you mind, uh, yeah, can we follow this through a little bit? Do you mind complexity? There are a lot of issues here that have to be pulled together. A mitzvah is worth infinity. We have a principle called schar mitzvah Baha'i al-malaika. There's no reward for a mitzvah in this world. That's a principle. The reason there's no reward for a mitzvah in this world is because a mitzvah, the word mitzvah means being together. You're together with Hashem. A, an, a deed in this world that's of spiritual value is repaid with infinite value. There's not enough currency in this world. This is a physical world. 
There's not enough currency in this world. There's not enough pleasure. There's not enough ecstasy in this world. Our sources say that the payment for one mitzvah, the ecstasy that the neshama feels for the smallest mitzvah in the world, is more than all the pleasure that every single human being has ever felt in the entire lifetime since the creation of the world till now, till the end of the world. That's the ecstasy, the compressed ecstasy which lasts forever, that is felt for one second of mitzvah that you've done in this world. This world doesn't have enough that's nothing. That's, that, that's a gross understatement. This world doesn't have enough currency to pay for even one mitzvah. You get paid in the next world where there's a plenty currency, not in this world. If that's true, what is fair about an evil individual getting paid for their mitzvahs in this world? That's not fair. All the yachts on the Mediterranean and, and uh, villas in the Caribbean, whatever it is that these people live for. That and other things. Those things, a whole world of those things, are purely pathetic, nothing compared to a mitzvah. You're talking about an infinite value. So if they did genuine mitzvahs, and Hashem pays them out with a few miserable yachts on the Caribbean, and one or two pathetic islands in the South Seas. It's a joke. The answer is, yes, it is a joke. It is nothing. But the problem with this individual is, that is their scale of value. Again, you can't pay a person, you can only, put, you can only make a deposit when the person's opened an account. You can, I can make a deposit for you where you've opened an account. If they, if they lived in the next world, if the tree was planted in that world, you could pay them there, but they aren't there. Yeah, Hashem is trying to shower on this individual the maximum they can take, but the maximum... He showers the maximum. The problem is your vessel. Where's your bucket? That's the problem. This individual's bucket is a this world bucket, so he fills it never. But that's all, you understand? The spiritual world is a world of meticulous arithmetical balance. It's that, it's, that's the way it goes. If this person is gathering, their bucket is here, and Hashem is saying, mm-hmm, and they won't. They've invested their life in this world. That's what it means to have your tree planted here. So what can he pay them out with? This world. It needs more thought as well. But that's what it is. That is this human status. Now, listen carefully to this. What the Rambam means when he says that most of, the, uh, most of us are 50-50, you know what he means? He does not mean that most people have a tree that happens to have exactly 50% of its branches in a good place and 50% of its branches in a bad place. He does not mean that. He means that most people on earth are born with their tree. Everybody's born with their tree in exactly the midline. That's where you're born. You're born neutral. You're not born good or bad. You're born good-looking, like some of us, and not good-looking, like... Others of us, and intelligent, and uh, yeah, with all your gifts and disadvantages. But righteous or evil, you're not born. That's up to you. You're born exactly in the middle. And your job is to be machria yourself. To move your tree one side or the other. And most people on earth have never moved their tree. Which means, most human beings throughout the history of the world have never made a policy decision of who they actually are and what they're here for, and whether they want to be a tzaddik or a rasha. Most human beings on earth are people. They're here. What are you living for? For whatever comes next. Are you available if a good deed comes your way? Most people are. Most people. Most Jews and non-Jews on earth. I, I think it's a safe thing to say. Most human beings on earth, if given the chance to do something meaningful and good and beneficial, and so would definitely do it. <coughs> definitely. And the same individuals, if given a chance to cut a corner and do something a little bit Dodgy. Do it. Why? Because there's no 
plan. There's no policy decision. The tree's never been moved. There's branches waving this way and branches waving that way. They happen to be 50%, maybe 60, 70, 80, 90, depends on the circumstances. Rosh Hashanah's a day that is not involved. It's got nothing to do with where your branches have to be, happen to be waving around. Rosh Hashanah is a day of where is your root planted. It's like, that's why you don't do tshuva. Tshuva. You see the beauty. Tshuva means you start worrying about where the branches are. Pruning branches. You don't want those branches in the bad place. You prune them. I'm sorry about this one and I cut it off. You add mitzvahs. That's not Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah looks only where your root is planted. That's all the judgment that takes place on Rosh Hashanah. Have you been machreer yourself? Yeah? Who are you? Not what your deeds are. Before your deeds take shape and have meaning, there has to be who you are. Your tree could have branches in a very good place. Many of them, very impressive. But if you plant it in poisonous soil, yeah, which most people aren't, by the way. Most people on earth have never said, I'm in the world to generate evil. Very, I, I doubt anybody who says, I'm in the world to serve the evil powers. I'm here to become a Russia, thoroughly evil. That person is probably mentally disturbed. Probably mentally disturbed. <laughs> Probably. There's got to be something wrong with it, I imagine. But unfortunately, very few people have said to themselves, I am in the world to move from here to here. That's what I'm. I'm here to be a tzaddik. I'm here that the rest of my life will be dedicated. I may make mistakes. And I may have branches that will go this way and that way. But I make a policy decision once and for all. I'm here to serve Hashem. That means, that means to represent something that transcends the natural. I'm here to be a reflection, to transmit something that's bigger than myself. I'm here to make contact with that, and that's who I am. Unfortunately, most people, even so-called religious people, define themselves by the technicalities of what they do. That is not what it's all about. Before you're born, they say to you, do you understand the meaning? Before you're born, this little neshama is taken. And the neshama say to this little neshama, look, you're a Jewish child. Do you know what that means? Neshama says, yes. You've got mitzvahs and averis, 613 mitzvahs, etc. etc. You've got a child says, yes, he knows all that. Then they say, and there's something else. Tehid tzaddik va'alti rosha, be a tzaddik, and don't be a rosha. There's something besides the mitzvahs and averis. When you get out there, make a decision. Yeah? And the moment of birth, you understand the beauty, Rosh Hashanah is the moment of birth. Rosh Hashanah is when the human child is born for the first time in the world. And that's what Rosh Hashanah is. And at the moment when the child is born out of his mother's body into the world for the first time, he makes an oath. Nothing to do with mitzvahs and averis. Who you are, what you're going to be. And Rosh Hashanah, when you are born again each year, when new life comes down for the year, there's a new moment of birth. At that moment, there's again the assessment, have you lived up to that oath? Never mind the mitzvahs and averis, that you'll work in the next ten days, and on Yom Kippur you can spend the whole day working out those details. All we're interested in today is the most important thing, who are you? And the tragedy of our existence is most of us worry about all the details, and we never... And you know what's really humiliating, and will stand against all of us in a very bitter way, is that in any other area of your life, you've definitely done that. If you're a business person, there's no intelligence business person who does not make a policy decision of what I am and where I'm going. They do that. I'm not a businessman, but I, I, I have a good authority that in the boardroom of all these big companies, they're very focused on that thing. They sit down there and they put up that graph. You know the one with the red line that goes up and up and up? That's what they do. And they say, look, we have a goal in this company to manufacture X, Y, Z and sell so many and be the best at ABC. And are we meeting the goal? They meet every week, every month. They fly in from all over the world, these directors, from their Caribbean places and their South Sea <laughs> islands where the ladies doing this with the fans and, you know, putting grapes in their mouth. That's what they do. Why? Because there has to be, as a, as a game plan. And if you're a sportsman, you have a game plan too. Your coach will sit down with you and you'll say, look, your goal is, you've got to break this time and this and this, and you start training towards it. You make a plan, don't you? 
There's no meaningful project in life that you don't do that way. So how come when it comes to your marriage, or how you raise your children, or who you are, that you just kind of blunds through life hoping that tomorrow won't be worse than yesterday? Well, what happened to the game plan? You, you're building something. You get one chance to do it without going into Gilgulim and reincarnation and so forth. Which doesn't really affect the discussion. You, you have one chance to do it, and at the end they're going to say to you, you know what they're going to say? You're going to die, and you're going to go down that channel, and three angels, not two, three angels are going to come and greet you. And the three angels are going to come, and one is going to say, let's, ta- let's see all your mitzvahs, and they'll count up all your mitzvahs. And then they say, let's see all your various, and they count up all your various. And then there's another claim against you. And the claim is, forget about your mitzvahs. Who are you? And you can show them 99.9% mitzvahs. And be a nobody. Because you never moved your tree. The God of Illness says, when that third angel comes to greet you, I mean, we're getting a little, it's a little personal, a little heavy, but before Yom Kippur, you know, if this isn't the time to terrify ourselves, then, you know, when is? So, the God of Yonah says that when the three angels come to greet you, he says an amazing thing. He says, the third angel, that third mother who comes to see Eichan Torosoi, where is your Torah? That means that some total of what you are here to build in the world, as he moves towards you, you recognize his face. It turns out to be the same angel who taught you Torah in the womb before you were born. That's, that's exactly, that, that's what he was there for. He was the one to teach you your role in the world, and show you everything you knew about the world, and then you were born and you left him behind. Now he comes to meet you anxiously, at the end of your lifetime. All that we studied together, and all that inspiration you were given, and all that task of yours that you... Did you do it? That's what the Rambam means. It's not a technical calculation of 50.000. That's not the issue. Not on Rosh Hashanah. The issue is that were you machria? There's a hachra here. On which direction did you move? Did you balance, overbalance yourself this way? Move your route? Did you move that way? That's what's being judged here. And that's what the oath of this little child represents. And of course, it's why we don't do tshuva. The day is focused on where I am, what I represent, not on the details. That comes later. Now, this goes a long way. There are many other, there are many other issues that this connects with. Let me share with you one of them. Again, there are many avenues that this fills itself out, it's many ramifications, explains many, many things, many issues. But let me share with you at least one very wonderful insight here, as much as we have time for, related to the subject of tshuva, that this subject hopefully will illuminate. There's a classic, a classic piece of writing that's called the Maimar al It's found in a book called... in a book called... A book by Rabbi Khanan Vasaman, Kovitz Ma'amorim, a famous book that he wrote uh, dealing with many issues of Torah thought, Emunah, Chiva, and so forth. And this is one of the classics in latter-day Torah writing, which we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be uh, doing our, our job here together in our review of the subject if we didn't mention this particular source. Let me share with you what he says and see if we can take it a little further. I doubt we'll have time to examine it all fully, but let's at least... Try to whet our appetites. Rabbi Khan says the following thing. Listen, follow me carefully. It's not easy. Don't be dismayed if you find it difficult to follow all the, the angles. It takes perhaps revision also. Now, it's not an easy thing to grasp in one, in one go. But it's worth a great effort. Rabbi Khan says like this. The classic of Jewish character building, Musa, right? Masilis Yisharim, that great classic work of ten steps of 
Jewish inner elevation, refinement of, of the neshama. He makes a statement in that book as follows. When he deals with the mitzvah of tshuva, of repentance, right, which is the opportunity that we have to go back in, in the past, as it were, and eradicate, eliminate our various yes, sins and damage that we have caused in the path, past, and thereby achieve a spiritual atonement and a cleansing, he says the following, the following thing. Listen carefully. The miracle of tshuva, I'm paraphrasing in English, the miracle of tshuva is that you can regret something in the past and have it uprooted as if it never happened. The miracle is that akiras harotzoin, which means the uprooting of a desire, is nechshav considered ka'akiras hamaisa, like an uprooting of the action. That when you uproot from your mind the desire, not he's talking about desire. I hope you remember that on previous occasion we said that there are two kinds of tshuva. Tshuva miyura and tshuva mi'ava. Tshuva miyura means you repent and regret and correct yourself out of a sense of fear. Because you're going to be punished one day. You don't want that, so you do, you correct yourself. But there's a much higher level called tshuva mi'ava. You correct yourself out of love. Not because you're afraid of being punished. Because you genuinely understand what you did that was not good. And you genuinely wish to, to eliminate that, that damage. The difference is that when you do tshuva miyura out of fear, you end up as a person who no longer does that behavior. Why? Because you've gained the self-control. Why? Because you're too afraid. You may be punished, so you stop doing that. But you've not changed your genuine desire. The proof is, if I could assure you that you could get away with it, then you do it. Right? You don't really regret the action. You only are too... It's a good level. It's fantastic. It's kosher. It's a, it's a good place to start and to keep you out of trouble. But it's not... It, it's not... Tshuva mi'ava means, not that I regret it because I may be punished, but I genuinely regret it. Punishment's irrelevant to me. Even if I could get away with it, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, the, the test would be, or how would you feel if, you, if there was no punishment? So a Tshuva mi'ura person would go and do it. A Tshuva mi'ava person would say, I'd be nauseated, I'd be sick of the thought, I wouldn't want to do that thing. The difference is rotsin. The Tshuva mi'ava means the person no longer has the desire to do that thing. So he says like this, that the changing of the desire, it's a tremendous level to reach, but the changing of the desire, that I'm a person who doesn't even want those things anymore, means that is not only uprooted from your mind, the desire, the past is uprooted too. That's the miracle of Tshuva. It puts it like this, to put it technically, for those who want to follow it through in detail, he says this, that when you regret your past sins, there's no way in the world that the, a thought could uproot an action. The way he puts it is, a person had an immoral relationship with someone else. That happened in the world. Someone killed somebody, the person's dead. How can uprooting a thought in your mind change the past? Impossible. So he puts it this way. In the concept of din, din means strict mechanical justice, there's no way that this could ever be corrected. But using what's called rachamim, Hashem's uh, characteristic, not of justice, but of kindliness. There's no word for how you translate rachamim, I don't know. Loving kindness, it means it, that which transcends the letter of the law. One of the Hebrew expressions that used here is lifnim mishuras adin. Yeah? Oh, beyond the letter of the law, beyond the strict line of the law. There's something that transcends logic, transcends the mechanics, uproots the past. That's what he says. And therefore, you uproot from your mind the desire, you regret the past sincerely with the steps that are required, the past disappears entirely uprooted. That's what he says. Says Rabbi Khanan Vasaman, right, who lived uh, centuries later, two centuries later, he, he says the following yeah, question. Listen carefully to this question, see if we can follow it through. It's worth making an effort. He says, look, 
The Gemara says to, in, in, in Kedushin, the last page of the first parak in Kedushin, the Gemara says like this. What happens to a person who spent a lifetime doing mitzvahs, mitzvahs, and at the end of his life regrets all the mitzvahs? Can you see that it's the converse of tshuva? Tshuva is a person who does sins and regrets them. This is a person that we call toher al harishonos. Toher al harishonot. A person who regrets what happened before. But this person regrets his mitzvahs. What happens, says the Gemara? He loses all his mitzvahs. They're all wiped out. He regrets them. I wish I'd never done that. I wish I'd never eaten kosher food and kept Shabbos and all that. What does it benefit me? If I had my chance again, I wouldn't do it. I sincerely regret it. Says the Gemara, he wipes them out. They're all lost. Okay? Says Rabbi Khanan, what's going on here? If you can regret your mitzvahs and lose them, what's the big deal about regretting your avarus and having them wiped out? What's the big... You tell me, tshuva is this amazing thing. It takes Hashem's rachamim, right? He overrules the natural things to wipe out your past. Hey, one moment. If I've spent my past doing mitzvahs and I regret them, you have no trouble telling me that they're all wiped out. Incidentally, which midah does that? Which characteristic of Hashem wipes out all your mitzvahs? Rachamim or din? It has to be din. Wipe out your mitzvahs? To lose all your good deeds that you ever did? That is very harsh din, isn't it? So you see the past is eradicated by din, don't you? So, are you with me? It's a, very, it's a very beautiful question. You have to appreciate this question. It's from one of the geniuses of the great Torah minds of the last generation. If you don't enjoy this kind of question, you've been living, living the wrong kind of life. I mean, His question is this. Again, if you can regret your mitzvahs and lose them, and that's a mechanism of logical, yeah, what we call din, then surely it's only fair and logical and balanced that you should be able to regret your avarus and have them wiped out. So why does the Messiah Shalom say no? When it comes to regretting your sins, that's called rachamim. That's unbelievable, that's miraculous, that goes beyond the... That's the question. It's a classic question. It's one of the classics in the literature on the subject. So, so the Rabbi Khan says, I asked my Rebbe, the Chavetz Chaim. The Chavetz Chaim, Rabbi Khan died in 1941, I think. The Chavetz was killed by the Germans. The Chavetz Chaim died in 1933. And he was his Rebbe. So he says, I asked my Rebbe, the Chavetz Chaim, this question. And the Chavetz Chaim answered me as follows. Listen to the answer of this great man. Chavetz Chaim said, look... Uprooting the past may be din. It may well be din. You're quite right about that. But when you do tshuva, your avarus in the past become merits. They don't disappear. That is rachamim. The process of tshuva, listen carefully to this. When you do tshuva miyira, out of fear, the past disappears. You get no merits, but you're not punished. When you do tshuva miyava, out of love of Hashem, because you really understand what you did wrong, all your negative deeds in the past count as if they were mitzvahs. Do you know what that means? Here's this person who lived a lifetime of terrible, immoral, negative deeds. And then they do tshuva, sincere tshuva. Tshuva mi'ava, what happens? Not only do they have the mitzvah of tshuva to their credit, all their sins become schuyos, like mitzvahs. That's wild. That's not din. That's not arithmetic. That's not balance. That's, that's a pure gift. That's called rachman. He goes on to say, that only applies to tshuva that's done, tshuva that's done, me'ava. Listen to what he says about tshuva me'yura. A person who does tshuva out of fear, right, what is the discussion about the past? 
Says the Chavetz Chaim, a person who does tshuva out of fear doesn't regret the past at all. There's no discussion there. A person who does tshuva out of fear only regrets... Uh, this person's concern is the future. They want to be punished in the future. They don't care about the past. They don't really regret the past. They just don't want to be punished. So how does that person uproot the past? Could also be out of Rachamim. That Hashem is prepared to take the past and uproot it here yeah, from a person who, who, who doesn't really... Re- that's, another, that's another discussion. But Tshuva, you have to... It doesn't go into the details about that. But Tshuva Mi'ava, when you really correct yourself, says the Chavetz Chaim, the past is uprooted by Din. Exactly like regretting mitzvahs. You regret your mitzvahs, you lose them. Strict letter of the law. You regret your Averas, you lose them. Strict letter of the law. But that those mitzvahs that you just lost suddenly pop up as... Those Averas that you just lost pop up as mitzvahs, that's Rachman. So far, so good. Good answer. Says Rabbi Khanan, I'm not happy with that answer. He's talking about his Rebbe. He writes, the way he puts it is, this is what the great, that great man said, this is what the Chavetz Khan said, but the words do not fulfill what the problem is in Masilis Yishorim. The book that we quoted in the beginning, Masilis Yishorim, starts by saying, how can a thought uproot the past? And he answers, Rachamim allows a thought to uproot the past. Well, that's not the answer we gave. We said Rachamim allows the past to become positive. But we said that the uprooting of the past is done by Din. That's not what the words say. The words say that the past is uprooted by Rachamim. That means no thought could uproot the past. That's not logical. The reason that the past is uprooted in the first place, that alone that things be, that itself is Rachamim. That goes beyond the letter of the Now we're in trouble again. What's the difference between uprooting the past where you regret mitzvahs and they disappear, and uprooting the past, regretting Averis and they disappear, one is a strict letter of the law and another is an amazing gift? How does that work? He answers the following answer. And even if you haven't been following me entirely, here's a principle that you can take in your hand here, which is a critical and central Torah principle. And Wachanan brings it from another work of the same author, the Masilis Yishorim, in another work called Derech Hashem. And there he says the following thing. Every mitzvah that a Jew does, every mitzvah that you do, has two different effects in the world. And of course, every Avera has two different effects. Stay with me carefully. Every time you do a mitzvah in the world, there are two things that happen in the spiritual world. One is, the lights come on. Amazing connections are made. And a, a tikkun, a certain correction, a certain upliftment, a certain benefit, something happens, and there's a great detailed description of it in all the Kabbalistic works, and the Nefesh Chaim talks about it, certain energies are, are, are set up and they come down to the world. The way, the way he deals with it there is, it happens in you. That, most of the sources talk about what happens in the higher world. There the Derech Hashem says, every time you do a mitzvah, something connects in you. In fact, the sources that deal with it in detail say, when you do a particular mitzvah, a particular part of your soul lights up. That's connected to that mitzvah. There are 613 parts of the body, just like there are 613 parts of the neshama. Each mitzvah is the, is the physical expression, the outer expression of a particular part of the inner being. When you do that mitzvah, you, you, you light up and you nourish and you elevate that part of your being. Right? That's what happens. That's a Kabbalistic discussion. But then, and of course, when you do an avera, you damage that part of your inner being. When you go and use a part of your body, or you do a particular action in the world, that's negative, then that inner part of you shrivels and is denied its spiritual energy and it becomes harmed. And of course in the higher worlds as well. Then there's another consequence entirely. And that is whenever you do a mitzvah, you get rewarded for having obeyed an instruction. Hashem wants you, yeah? God, Hashem, 
wants you to do certain actions. Please eat the following food or avoid the following thing. Eat matzah on Pesach. Live in a sukkah for seven days. Take a lulav and esrog. Yeah? Do tshuva on Yom Kippur. Lal shofar on Rosh Hashanah. When you do that, two dimensions are activated. One, you get reward for obedience. For fulfilling his command. As a loyal, as a loyal subject. Secondly, the, the mitzvah doesn't only give you reward for having obeyed. It does something as well that's good for you. Did you see the two different... The reward for the first category, we are not informed. We don't know. Nobody is allowed to know. Nobody knows the reward or the benefit that happens in your soul or the higher worlds when you fulfill a mitzvah. Nobody knows. It's hidden from us and kept secret. The Medrash says the reason it's kept secret is because if Hashem informed you what was the reward of all the mitzvahs, we'd all flock to the ones that pay better. And the garden would not be beautiful. So the, the, the king does not tell his gardeners which fruit trees he's paying more for, then the garden is all done beautifully. Some mitzvahs do more significant things and others don't. No human being can know that. The obedience, you are certainly told the reward. It's in proportion to the difficulty. How much loyalty you showed, how much effort you made, that's the reward. Two completely separate categories. So far, so good? And they have vast differences. Vast. Let me give you an example. Let's say you try to do a mitzvah. Let's say you, you try to do a mitzvah and you fail. Through no fault of yours. You made a tremendous effort to go and visit someone who was sick. And when you walked in there, you made a schlep. You spent the whole afternoon and you were very self-righteous going to visit this person. You walk in, the nurse tells you the person has been discharged. By the way, when that happens, you usually say to yourself, what a chutzpah. <laughs> what right do they have to get better? I came to visit them. I want to sign a juicy, a juicy invalid. <laughs> Anyway, that's another problem. The point is, the point is that you get 100% reward for that mitzvah as if you've done it. On the contrary, the Gemara says, if you only think of doing it, but seriously, not, not a curse to you, but a firm decision, and then that, from the moment of the thought you prevent it, you get full reward for the mitzvah. Which reward? The reward that you get for the effort. You get zero reward for the consequence of the mitzvah. never happened in the world. And conversely, if you fulfill a mitzvah with no intention and no effort, yeah, according to some opinions, without even any awareness at all, you get zero reward for the effort. You get 100% reward for the mitzvah because it happened. Incidentally, this is the deep reason, and Rabbi Khanan says this, why our forefathers fulfilled the Torah before they were commanded. Why would you fulfill a divine commandment before it's a commandment? Answer is, yes. No reward fulfilling a commandment. There's no commandment. But the thing itself is spiritually good. It does something in the world. It benefits you. The world is elevated. It's two separate things. Is the point clear? Can you see how it works by a virus? Let's say you try and do a sin. But unknown to you, you don't manage. Do you get damaged by the sin? No. Do you get punished for the disobedience and rebellion? Of course. Yeah, I don't see any enlightened faces. You're walking down the street in a far-off town where no one knows you. You walk past an um, establishment that sells cheese-laced, shrimp-filled, bacon-flavored, uh, <laughs> lobster, you know. I, that's not allowed, that stuff, okay? So. <laughs> and... You know, 
and you lose it, you lose it, you lose it, there's no one watching, you go in, you sit down there, you order one of these things, you hide behind your thing, and you wilt this thing down. Okay. Unknown to you, unknown to you, on that day, the lobster was out of stock, they couldn't get the shrimp, the cheese happened to be vegetarian, the whole thing was glut kosher, in fact, not only that, they, they, they bought, the, they bought the, you know, the components from a glut kosher delicatessen across the road, and they made it look like that. So you ate the most kosher meal in town. What is your spiritual status? Are you damaged by the aware of unkosher food? Zero. But you are severely punished for the rebellion. You went against your separate issues. And conversely, very frightening, if you walk into a very kosher establishment, can you see what's coming? And you check it thoroughly, and you ask to see the mashgiach, to make sure it's kosher, he comes out into a religious-looking fellow with a long beard, and his wife's got a long beard, and the whole, <laughs> the whole thing is very... Couldn't be more kosher. You check it out. Every little component is stamped with the right stamps, glut kosher. And it turns out that day there was a tragic accident, and what they feed you is glut trafe. Right? All unkosher. You made every effort beyond all reasonable effort. Do you get punished for disobedience and breaking Hashem's command? Of course not. Do you get damaged by the unkosher food? You bet. Absolutely. Because it, it desensitizes the Jewish Neshama. It's not a fault of yours. Rabbi Hanan quotes, for example, the Gemara says that one of the prophets, one of the prophets prayed to Hashem that the people of a town called Anasa, in a town, a town of thoroughly wicked people who were about to be punished for the misdeeds, he prayed to Hashem a very bizarre prayer. That when these people give charity, I beg you, Hashem, bring it about that all the charity that they give ends up in the hands of people who are undeserving and use it for bad causes. Why? Because if a person gives charity, these are very evil people. All their charity giving was, like all their other deeds, completely for the wrong motivation. No spiritual value at all, only because they had to or to look good or whatever. But if you do charity for the wrong reason, on the contrary, some sources say that if you lose money, falls out of your pocket, and ends up in a good cause, you get a blessing. Because it's yours. It's a part of you that ended up there. So these wicked people give charity. They get the benefit of the mitzvah. They get the benefit of the obedience? No. Because that's completely a vested interest. There's no obedience. There's no effort. Assuming there's none. Hashem, don't even get them the reward of that. Make sure that when they give this selfishly motivated gift and get no reward for it, Make sure they don't even get the other reward. Make sure that it goes into the hands of bad people who use it for bad. You hear there's two separate components. Is, is the message clear? Says Rebukhan of Asman, listen carefully to this. When you do tshuva, when you do tshuva, let's go, let's go this way. When you regret all your mitzvahs, listen carefully. When you regret, a person lives a whole lifetime of mitzvahs, at the end they regret everything. You can never undo mitzvahs you can't undo mitzvahs. All the regret in the world can't undo mitzvahs. It's you. It's the spiritual world. It's all been built. You can't undo that. You can only undo the component of obedience. All you can wish undone is the fact that you were an obedient servant and now you're a rebellious yeah, person who's not a servant. That changes immediately, radically. But you can never undo your mitzvahs. All you can undo in the past is the component of your obedience. Did you hear this? Let's reverse it. Person spends a whole lifetime doing averis, and at the end they regret having done those averis. 
all you can ever undo in the past is the obedience. You can be sorry you were a, a, a malicious and rebellious individual. So now you become a loyal servant. That's immediately changed. That's logic. That's din. They both work mechanically. But that the damage of the mitzvah should be taken away, that's miraculous. It's logical that if you are not obedient and you've now reformed yourself and you now are obedient and you fulfill Hashem's wishes and all you live for is Him and so forth, you change that instantaneously. And all your previous all your previous um, errors, right? They all become yeah, that component of disobedience disappears. But the damage has been done in the world. You're a harmed individual. You've damaged yourself in the world. How does that get undone? That's an objective reality. That's Rachamim. That's Rachamim. That's, that's something far beyond that Hashem cleanses and undoes the damage, as it were, is an amazing thing. Be very careful here. It does not undo the physical consequences. That's something else. That's another thing. That's another thing. Rabbi Khanin gives a very interesting example. I'll just share one of them with you. It's getting late. But I'll share one example with you. Beautiful example. You know, when Adam sinned, when Adam sinned, you know, the Torah says that when Hashem said to Adam that on the day you eat from the fruit of the tree, you will die. He ate from the fruit of the tree and he did not die. He lived another 930 years, supposed to live for a thousand years. He was destined to live forever, right? And because of the sin, he only lived for a thousand years. In fact, 70 years he gave to King David, who was only destined to live for three hours. And he ended up living for 930 years. Why did he have a finite lifespan? Because he sinned. Had he never done the sin, eaten of the fruit of the tree, he would live forever. The problem is, the Torah says, On the day that you eat of through the tree, you will die. So how come he lived for 930 years? You hear the problem. So there are very interesting solutions. There's one opinion is that Hashem's day is a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day in your sight. It says, until him, surrender it was a day. There are... Rokhonon answers like this. Very interesting answer. He was supposed to die on the day that he ate the fruit of the tree. But he did tshuva. He did tshuva. He ate from the fruit of the tree and was going to die that day. But he repented. He did tshuva. Tshuva wipes out the punishment, doesn't it? That's why he didn't die that day. Says Rokhonon, but then why did he die? Why didn't he live forever again? Listen carefully, it's beautiful. Are you with me? Let's go through the mechanism. Here's Adam. Hashem says, don't eat the fruit of the tree. Adam, if you do, you die on that day. Adam eats from the fruit of the tree, and the time of the day is ticking away. By nightfall, he's going to be dead. He does tshuva. Hashem, I'm sorry, this is what I did. I will never do it again. I repent. I remember. He does the whole mitzvah of tshuva. Hashem says, tshuva, no punishment. Wipe it out. But then he should be back to living forever. You see it? Says Rabbi Khanan, no. Shiva only does the disobedience component, but the inner harm component, that, that remains. That remains. Two separate components. When you've harmed yourself, <coughs> now the question you might want to think about for homework is, why doesn't Rachamim take care of that? Why didn't he live forever because Hashem's Rachamim goes beyond the letter of the law? Okay? Then think about that. Challenging question. Wuhan doesn't answer that. That's what he says. Okay? Very worthwhile thinking through. Let's bring it back to the beginning and understand. The, another way to handle this issue is that what happens on Rosh Hashanah is a hachro. The reason 
the reason that you uproot the past, listen carefully. The reason that, that's Rabbi Khanan's answer, but there's another answer, and that is this. The reason that you uproot the past is a mechanism of din, is in terms of the hakhra. That means who you are, that you can uproot. The way Rabbi Khanan puts it is, you uproot the disobedience element, and you become a person who's different in that spiritual way. Right? That part you can change. We could say it like this, that you, you move yourself from the midline, or from the bad place, into the good place. That changes who you are. It puts your train on a whole new track. That is in fact in. But that the, that, that the damage should be uprooted, right? That the past should disappear. Not just that you're a new person. That the baggage should be detached, as one Kabbalist in Jerusalem once put it. He said that if you do tshuva that way, for example, you only think of tshuva, you decide to be a new person, even though you don't fulfill the mitzvah of speaking it out, the mitzvah is valid. At least, you're a new person. But you've not fulfilled, again... What's the difference between a person who thinks in their mind I'm a new person and they make a decision and they live their life differently and a person who says tshuva, vidui, confession, regret and taking on... What's the difference? The difference is a person who does thought in their mind to become a new person is a new person. But they have not fulfilled the mitzvah of tshuva. What's the difference? He said it's like this. A person who changes their mind is like a train on a new track. They're going to a bad destination, the train's now going to a good destination. They're a new person. But the baggage is still attached. The carriages you schlep with you. Tshuva puts your train on a new track, that's what the thought does, and the mitzvah detaches the baggage, no more punishment. Completely different, different story entirely. There are many proofs that tshuva in your mind works. It's very important. Some people can't fulfill the mitzvah of tshuva. They can't speak, Bidui. They have a, they're lying in a hospital bed semi-conscious, they can't speak, or they have an tr- endotracheal tube on a ventilator and they can't do Bidui. Such a person, all they need is consciousness. Because when you have consciousness, you can do tshuva. You can't do the mitzvah of tshuva and detach the baggage. But you can reform the personality. Do you understand? There are two components here. Two components. <laughs> What's the proof that tshuva in the mind without the words is valid? Can you think of a proof? No, why am I doing all the thinking? <laughs> can you bring me a proof that if a person thinks of becoming you, it's valid? There is an, a beautiful proof in the Talmud. The Talmud says if a man says to a woman... Be married to me on condition that I'm a righteous individual. Right? You are married to me. I'm a nas on condition I'm a totally righteous individual. And this person up to one second ago has been the blackest, most evil, heinous, crime-ridden, grotesquely malicious <laughs> and bad person. Right? This is a clear history. Why the ladies attracted to this type of fellow don't even... But nevertheless, she decides to marry the fellow. So he says to her, look, marry me on condition that I'm righteous. Says the Talmud, valid marriage. Now, a valid halachic contract, contract like a marriage is only valid if the stipulated condition is true. If you say to a woman, marry me on condition that I have a million pounds in the bank. And she agrees. You're married only if you had a million pounds in the bank at that moment. Right? Because you posited the contract on a condition. Fair enough? If you say, marry me on condition that I'm a righteous individual, and up to the last moment he's not done one single righteous thing, she's married. Says him, why? Shema, hirher, tshuva, beliboy. Maybe at that moment in his heart, he changed his life. So you see that a work of the heart can change a person entirely. I didn't say vidui, I didn't start saying I'll never do it again, and make a whole speech. That is a question of taking away the punishment for the past where that falls away. But the revision, the hachra, moving yourself into a different category, that needs only 
that work of the heart. And there are many other ways we could put this. Let's just wrap it up and say as follows. Rosh Hashanah is the time for the Hachro. That's when you decide who you are. Yom Kippur is the time for the chew of undoing the past. This is the spectrum. This is the spectrum. On Rosh Hashanah, there's no time to go into all the details. You haven't got time to work out all your details. And if you start doing that, you're focusing on the wrong thing. We don't say video in Rosh Hashanah. We don't do tshuva. That's not the time. Before you start operating your business, you make a policy decision. You decide what you're here for. You define your goals. You define your strategy. And then you start working out the details. On the first day of the year, you don't start messing with details. You're, getting, you're obstructing yourself. You're getting confused. On the first day of the year, you stand there and you say, Where am I planted? Have I ever moved that tree? The chances are you and the place around you and your country and the whole world is a 50-50 proposition because nobody has really decided that they're in the world as a firm policy decision for change. That's what you have to do. If you do it in Rosh Hashanah, you have to do it all the time. It begins on Rosh Hashanah. That's a special, energized day for doing it. But if you didn't do it then, you have to do it always. And even if you did it then, you still have to do it always. Because anybody working towards a plan is always keeping that goal. Shavisi Hashem Lenegdi Tobit. Hashem, you're always in front of my eyes. Always. That means I never move. Everything I see is through that image of your name. Because everything I'm doing is moving. Yeah? No business can justify one drop of energy spent someplace else. Whatever they do. Even when a business spends money, it's in order to earn money. When a business spends money on its advertising department, it's only because there's a sales department someplace else. That even the money they spend is calculated to earn. Right? If they ever spend money that doesn't go towards earning, there's something crazy about that business. The goal has to be in front of your eyes. And therefore... That's the Akhra. Then you start working on the details. These ten days, you take that Akhra, you've moved your tree, you've made a policy decision, you're in the world of something that transcends you, and then you start pruning branches and moving. Moving the branches, building up. You start worrying about the details, start cleansing and perfecting. There's a detailed work, a lot of work to be done. Right? And a Jew does that. But again, there are two components. And therefore, when this child is in the womb, he has two degrees of responsibility. One is all the mitzvahs and all our various, he's taught that, there will be two angels to tot those up in the end. That will be the accounting of a life that makes up a balance of mitzvahs and avarice, and they all will be calculated. There's no question about that. And every detail will have to be paid for. But then there's something else. And when he's born, they make him take an oath. Make him take an oath. And that oath has got nothing to do with the mitzvahs and avarice, in this sense. The oath is, you're a small, you're a little neshama, you've been born into the world, now you're beginning a lifetime, you're pure, absolutely pure, you're neither good nor bad, you're a neutral being, and you've been given here the tools of a lifetime. And at that moment you make an oath. Your inner being, your neshama, has already sworn itself to that place. Your outer being is confused. Your outer and your lower being, your body is confused. Instead of thinking about mitzvahs, you're thinking about those yachts on the Caribbean and the, all that stuff. That's what your body does to you. That's what your peculiar emotions do to you. But your inner being is focused only on that inner reality. That's what it was. And therefore this is the time of year to go back to that situation. And I've mentioned before that the word shofar is the same as shfir. Shfir means the liquid that the child is bathed in in the mother's womb. That's what the shofar means. Another meaning of the same word. You go back, the moment of hearing that sound of the shofar, these ten days that follow on, you go back to that moment and you remind yourself that when you were born, that even though it may have been it may have been obtunded, that memory, but there was a moment when you said that. And they said to you, mashbin oisoi, Force this child, impose on this child an oath to heat Sadiq Alti Rosh.